I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Texas opens up lifting mask mandates. Dr. Seuss gets canceled and everybody's going to have a vaccine by the end of May. So says President Biden. Later in the pod, Autumn and I interview Dr. John Frankie, theologian and resident at Second Presbyterian in Indianapolis, Indiana. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great show. Autumn, how are you this week? I am a little concerned for my friends and family in Texas. I uh, used to be a Texas school teacher, and I have a lot of uh, Texas school teachers still in my, my family and friend group, and they're concerned. But Autumn, Governor Greg Abbott said this week that Texas is opening up and everything is going to be rainbows and unicorns there because, I mean, Texas has whipped the virus. It's gone, right? Well, I mean, you saw how their power grid situation went, so clearly you can trust the leaders there. Exactly, exactly. I am so concerned about our friends and family down in Texas. Uh, This is just an irresponsible reaction uh, to some favorable numbers. I mean, granted, uh, we were seeing some outstanding numbers as the decline of infections and deaths across the country are, uh, are heading in the right direction. But this decision by not only Texas, but Mississippi soon followed to open up their states at 100% is going to cause death. Greg Abbott and the Texas legislature, as well as Mississippi, are going to have death on their hands. Oh, they absolutely are. And, you know, Texas is near the bottom as far as uh, states who have been successful at vaccinating a good portion of their population. They have, um, until yesterday, had not even prioritized uh, school teachers. And so with the lifting of these mask mandates, you are going to have, I mean, Petri dishes, basically, at all public schools in Texas. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you really do shake your head at this decision that Governor Abbott made uh, this week. And you have to, I mean, and you, you put, I mean, you, you made the excellent point. Why is he doing this? And it, it certainly seems as though he's trying to shift attention away from their horrible mismanagement of the polar vortex that hit Texas uh, a few weeks ago and their power grid just absolutely almost collapsed. In fact, uh, it was stated publicly that they got so close to having a failed power grid that there was a potential for Texas to be without power for months. Mm -hmm. And thank God that didn't happen, but that's how close they became because Texas decided a long time ago they wanted to be independent and free from the the grids that the, the rest of the country are on. And so they are on their own grid, and then they did not winterize properly Uh, and caused all this mayhem. People died because of their neglect and mishandling of all this. And so all of that is going on, and then all of a sudden, uh, Abbott and the rest of the the legislature in Texas is getting heat, and all of a sudden, he makes this announcement and just blows the, uh, the story about their mismanagement of the storm and grid off the front page, and now everybody's talking about this like we are. 
Well, I also feel like it definitely has something to do with the fact that spring break is approaching. Um, There's a lot of beach access in Texas. There's a lot of amusement parks in Texas. They are, you know, definitely pandering to people who have commercial interest and not putting public health at the forefront, which I feel like is something leadership should do. You're absolutely right. Well, speaking of leaders and good news on the pandemic uh, front, President Biden announced this week that by the end of May, simply because Johnson & Johnson has had approval of their vaccine now, Merck, their competitor, fierce rivals, are going to help them produce their vaccine and distribute it, that it looks as though by the end of May, Every U.S. adult in the country will have a vaccine available for them. That is wonderful mm-hmm. news. Yeah, it's it's really, really good news. The access to vaccine um, has been an ongoing issue, especially with the careful storage that's necessary for Pfizer and Moderna. And so I feel like, you know, Johnson and Johnson is just another great option to have. It's a single dose. It's not quite as fussy with how you have to store it. And I think especially when we look at our more rural communities where we're starting to see these pockets of outbreak, um, it's just really important. Absolutely. I watched the press conference this week when he made the announcement. And I mean, I was just literally shocked because, you know, I was expecting uh, that news to be, oh, we'll have enough vaccines by the end of summer or early fall. But when he threw out the end of May, it was like uh, I was sitting on the uh, in the set of the old Oprah show when Oprah came out (laughs) with her favorite things. You get a vaccine. You get a vaccine. You get a vaccine. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's very exciting news and in a step toward that herd immunity. Yeah. Well, great news. Well, another story that we're following here at Good Faith Weekly is Uh, The institute that oversees the publication of Dr. Seuss made an interesting uh, decision this week. They have decided to stop publishing five of Dr. Seuss's books because they declared them racially insensitive. And when they showed the drawings within these books and some of the language that was used in these books, uh, you know... I can certainly see why they came to that uh, conscious decision. And this is the institute that has been uh, chosen by the family to oversee the publication of the Seuss material. And there's so many of them, and they're so wonderful. And Dr. Seuss has been a staple for children for decades upon decades. Uh, But they made this decision on their own. There was no outcry. Nobody was calling for the the non-publication of these books. But they evaluated their own material, made their decision that, yes, this was insensitive and that we think that Theodore Geisel, who was Dr. Seuss, would want these books pulled from publication and circulation. So they made that decision. Well, as you can imagine, that went Well, Mitch, that's that's not what I heard. I heard the liberals were just canceling Dr. Seuss altogether. They're legislating, and they just canceled him. You mean no more eggs and ham? Nope, no more eggs and ham, no no more more cat in the hat. We're not going any places. Can't even hop on pop? Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. It's all canceled. All canceled. All canceled. Oh my gosh. I am so tired of this group that just whines and belly aches about the cancel culture. 
here you have a private organization who's been entrusted by the family to oversee the publication of this material, saying, we think that knowing the family and Theodore Geisel and his wife, uh, Audrey, that he would feel that this needs to be pulled and, and not published any longer. And I think that's a conscious decision. I mean, all of these people who are crying that we're canceling things, they're also free market folks. This is a mm-hmm. private company making this decision themselves. Nobody's legislating that whatsoever. They're making that decision on their own. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And not in this case necessarily, but I also feel like sometimes cancel culture um, is just people who are misspelling the word consequence, you know, <laughs> like sometimes there's a consequence for your bad behavior. Preach it, sister. Preach actions. it. Yeah. <laughs> Preach it. Absolutely. I mean, and you're, I mean, God, you're so exactly right that uh, they are misspelling cancel for, uh, you know, their consequences uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to their decisions. Uh, so yeah, I, I just I, I just shake my head uh, when they start crying about the cancel culture because really they do not want to have any sort of uh, oversight or responsibility uh, or accountability uh, to other people. They just want to mm-hmm. do what they want to do. And I'm also getting a little bit tired of this notion that well. You know, people should just do the right thing. We should be winning hearts and minds of people because if we just, you know, led them to Jesus or, you know, showed them the light, then these people are good people. They'll make the right decision. Well, history tells us that ain't so. No, it's not true. The Jesus Band-Aid isn't going to fix everything. It's not. I mean, there are times when drastic measures must take place because there is hurting there is uh, suppression, there is marginalization, and there is segregation taking place and racism taking place in mm-hmm. society. And, you know, when a private company does it, I mean, that, that's even wonderful because they are making their own decision to, to withdraw these books. But there are times when uh, federal, state, local governments have to intervene, you know, i.e. slavery, i.e., <laughs> you know, Jim Crow, uh, you know, women's uh, liberation. I mean, equal rights. I mean, every one of these things, you know, somebody had to intervene because guess what? Those good people that you're talking about, they didn't make the right decision and they weren't not going to make the right decision. And so, yes, somebody had to come in and cancel those ideas so that new just ideas could be implemented and uh, and lived out in this society. So I, I just get really tired of people complaining about the cancel culture. Yeah, there's plenty of Dr. Seuss books still available. You can still read The Grinch. You can still read Yertle the Turtle. It's going to be okay. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I feel better you telling Good. me that, that, that not all of the Dr. <laughs> Seuss books uh, are out. So, Well, uh, we had a wonderful conversation this week with Dr. John Frankie, who's the theologian and resident at Indianapolis, at Second Presbyterian in Indianapolis, Indiana. We talked to him what, and asked Dr. Frankie, what in the world is a theologian and resident, first of all? But then we talk about his new book, uh, Missional Theology and Introduction, and it is fascinating uh, as he walks us through what he thinks, what it means to be a living on living mission with uh, God's will and God's plan 
within this world. It's just, it's just really, really well uh, done. And, and so stay tuned as uh, Autumn and I visit with Dr. John Frankie. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcast or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this week's episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. John Frankie is a theologian in resident at Second Presbyterian Church there in Indianapolis. He's a graduate of Oxford University and previously served as seminary professor and administrator, chief executive officer of a new school startup, and as a theologian in residence for a Presbyterian Church USA congregation in Pennsylvania. He also serves as an affiliate professor of theology at Christian Theological Seminary, general coordinator of the Gospel and Our Cultural Network in North America, and an adjunct professor at Princeton Theological Univ- or Princeton Theological Seminary. His most recent book, Missional Theology, is in bookstores now. Dr. Frankie, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, in the introduction, there are a few things I didn't mention, and one of those is that you're a huge Cincinnati Reds uh, baseball fan, Ohio State Buckeye football fan, and we just found out that uh, you're a supporter of Byron Munich uh, over there in the Bundesliga, and so how's all your teams doing? They doing well this year? Well, Byron's having a great run. Uh, we only the second team in history to have won six trophies in a single season. We just finished that, so... Um, great run there. Reds, you know, baseball season's getting to start is getting ready to start up. Uh, pitchers and catchers reported last Wednesday, and our the first spring training game is Sunday. And opening day is April first. I'm a season ticket holder, and my plan right now is to be there if they'll let me into the ballpark. <laughs> well, good for you. Well, we've been asking uh, the same question to all of our guests uh, during this pandemic, and uh, just uh, for uh, the sake of checking in on everybody, making certain everybody is safe. How have you been feeling? Uh, have you had an opportunity to get a vaccine yet? Uh, just how have you been coping during this pandemic? Yeah, it's been challenging. Um, I haven't been vaccinated yet. I'm, I'm not, you know, quite in that age range. So, um, but I've been doing okay. Um, I, I am, looking forward to not seeing the people that I teach and meet with in little boxes. Um, and so, but I think in a lot of ways, um, I've tried to, you know, make the best of it. And I think for folks in our church community that are comfortable with technology, we've been able to do some really exciting things. The challenges for folks who aren't comfortable with technology, I think some of them are feeling left out. So that's a challenge that we're continuing to wrestle with. But, you know, personally, I'm, I'm doing okay, although like everybody looking forward to the end of this whenever the end comes. Yeah. My sons uh, are in college. They've been calling this uh, the Brady Bunch uh, semesters because everybody's in little boxes. Yes. <laughs> so. That's a great line. That's a great line. 
So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, can you tell us more about theologian in residence? Were you bitten by a biblical spider? Do you have superpowers? <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, usually the first thing I say to people is, no, I do not live at the church. <laughs> um, it, it only feels that way sometimes. Um, but no, it, the, it's kind of an older term, but it's the idea of somebody who is a, a, a sort of teaching theologian or a teacher who is going to do their work primarily in the church rather than in the seminary. Um, I usually say to folks, I taught at seminary for 18 years. And after that, I felt like uh, through a number of circumstances, God said, after always teaching my students that theology is for the church, I felt like God was telling me to put up or shut up. And so I had an opportunity to shift my vocational context uh, to the church, and uh, I think it's it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made because, you know, when you, I teach in the church, then I'm with people that we go out and do something about it. Um, and so it really is, I just think of it as doing the work that God called me to do, but in the church instead of the academy. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that that's, um, that's where, at least where I feel called to do that work. Um, and so I guess we'll probably talk a little bit about the idea of missional, but sure. I've often said in the academy, for many people, missional is old hat. It's just been used so many times. But in the church, a lot of people don't know about it. And so if that idea is going to become what it, it's envisioned to be, it has to take root in the church. Yeah. So that's why I made the shift. And John, I love the, you know, I was not familiar with the term theologian in residence uh, for quite some time uh, growing up in Southern Baptist churches in Oklahoma. Uh, we just didn't have those kinds of things uh, in those congregations. Uh, but I, you know, growing up, uh, it's certainly become familiar. I've become familiar with the term. I've met a lot of theologian in residence. And what I love about this particular position within a church, it really does seem to bridge the gap between the congregation and the academy, um, which I think is much needed uh, on a wider scale because you hear a lot from congregations that. Uh, uh, you know, professors, theologians, they sit in their ivory towers and they think deep thoughts, but they're not here in the nitty gritty of the congregational life. Well, this bridges that gap and it demonstrates for those people sitting in the pews and who are rolling up their sleeves and doing theology in the streets, how theological reflection, how theological conviction is a foundation for those actions and those works. So uh, I applaud any church that is able to, to put a theologian in residence. It's, it's a great, great program. Yeah, I think I agree. And, you know, so much credit to churches that have, you know, having the resources, but are also willing to use the resources for a position like that, I think is really wonderful. Yeah. So, John, before we get to the book, let's talk about theological reflection. Humanity has gone through an exhausting ordeal of issues recently. From the rise of authoritarianism to COVID-19, the world finds itself looking towards the heavens with outstretched arms asking some really difficult questions. So, during this specific time in history, why do you think it is so important to offer people theological reflection uh, so that they can come to some kind of understanding what they are encountering, especially uh, over the last few years? 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's really important because people are looking for whatever their faith commitments are, even if they don't have any. I think it's very natural for people to wonder what's going on, why am I here, who are all these people around me, and is there any point to it? And um, theological reflection helps us get beyond sort of the answers that our culture might want to push on us or offer to us and really say, you know, is there something bigger than us? Um, and namely, in the Christian tradition, we would talk about God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And does that God have a purpose uh, for our being here? And I think theological reflection is the context in which we really try to wrestle with that and ask those you know, hard questions, but also some of the most meaningful questions that uh, folks can can ask and try to find answers to. So, you know, I don't know why we have a global pandemic. That one is beyond my pay grade, but I can help people respond to what are the kinds of things we ought to be doing in the midst of these circumstances. And especially now, I think when people find places of meaning in their lives in circumstances like this, it's, it's very powerful. So I think that's the kind of thing that theological reflection can help us do at any time, but maybe especially in times uh, like these. Yeah, absolutely. So at Good Faith Media, we talk a lot about the importance of connecting beliefs with our actions. And while many evangelical Christians these days seem to prioritize their beliefs over actions, um, so, you know, a belief in a Bible verse versus actually following what it's teaching, what recommendations do you provide people to connect their beliefs with their actions? Yeah, thanks for that, Autumn. You, you know, you've you've touch something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I, I think one of the one of the verses in scripture that I, I just think we don't do enough pay, do enough justice to is James. Uh, was it 224? Uh, I think that's it. it might be 26, but you know he says, so you see uh, justification is not by faith alone but by works. And I think uh, for all that I appreciate the Protestant Reformation, and I, I'm a Protestant, so I value that immensely, I think we've probably overdone the kind of understanding of faith alone that makes it seem as though that's what really matters. And so what I try to do in churches and even in the book is connect you know, our beliefs to our actions um, because I think at the end of the day, it really is our actions that, um, and I'll, you know, I think that God is most concerned about. So in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, you know, we're, we're called to go out and teach people to obey the things that Jesus taught, not just to believe things. Um, and unfortunately, I think in the American context, as you point out, we have an awful lot of folks who seem to think if they believe the right things, they can pretty much live their lives however they want to. And, you know, not that this is the sole reason, but, you know, a lot in the news of prominent evangelical Christians who have uh, engaged in horrendous actions. And part of me wonders if at some point in the back of their mind, they thought, well, yeah, I know these things are wrong, 
but it really is okay because I believe the right things or I'm, I'm out preaching the gospel. And I think we really need to um, get away from some of that. So I've kind of had it in the, the back of my mind that I'd like to write a book someday with the title, Not By Faith Alone. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Because, um, you know, God's calling us to action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of books, you've got a new book on the bookshelves right now entitled Missional Theology. So, John, tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write about this topic. So the book uh, is about this whole thing called the missional movement, which got really started. It's been around for forever, you know, in a lot of ways. But the particular language started in a book that was published in 1998 called Missional Church uh, that some friends of mine were involved in. And that's sort of taken the contemporary North American church and really uh, in Europe as well by storm and everybody's missional now. Um, but what, what I have found is, and it's not just my insight, that a lot of people, the term has just become something that uh, means ev- anything to every, anybody who uses it, whatever they want it to mean. And my conviction has been that um, the, the most powerful ways to think about this missional idea are to root it in theology. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do in the book is sort of do an, uh, a, an introductory sketch of what things look like with respect to thinking about church and Christian witness and theology if we move the idea of mission from the the margins of what the church does. So church says, oh, we do many things. One of them is mission. What happens if we say, well, mission isn't one of the things we do. It is the central thing that we do that shapes everything else. Mm -hmm. So the book tries to look at what happens to our thinking about God if we say mission is at the center. What happens to our thinking about the church if we say mission is at the center? What happens to theology and witness if we say mission is at the center? So really, that's what the book tries to explore. And then the last two chapters say, and if we really do this, and every church is involved in this, then we're going to have a lot of plurality, or what I call in the book, multiplicity. Mm -hmm. And I try to make an argument why I think that's okay. That's really what God intends. And then the last chapter wrestles with the question, okay, if we've got all this multiplicity and diversity, is there anything that unites us? And I try to wrestle with that question. Um, so that's really what the book is trying to do. And I hope that it's a starting point for pastors, students, and folks in churches to kind of jump into some of this newer, more recent thinking uh, and explore it for themselves. Yeah. Well, I've read the book, and it, uh, you know, obviously it. You're a theologian. Uh, it, you know, it looks like it, it could be a textbook in a seminary class. It should be a textbook in a seminary class. But the way you have put the book together, I mean, anyone can pick it up and profit from uh, what you're, you're saying in the book because it's very well written. It's easy to, to read. It, it's, it's, it's challenging and makes us grapple with, with our thoughts and our theology and, and this idea of missional church. Uh, but it's, it's very well done, so I encourage all of our listeners to, to pick up a copy of it. Yeah, one of the things that I have delighted in doing, and I mentioned this group in the preface, my 8 a.m. theology thoughts and coffee class, and just we just finished 
you know, we have about 35 to 40 people getting together on Zoom at 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings to who have read the book and talked about it and trying to figure out how to live it out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I hope uh, lots of folks would would do that. Yeah, absolutely. So Christian nationalism has been in the news a lot recently. Um, In the book you write, the missionary expansion of the church has frequently been an exercise in the mission of empire through the process of colonization and has used the Bible as a justification for this activity, beginning with the establishment of the church in the Roman Empire. So, and I'm tempted to start singing Onward Christian Soldier here. As a theologian, what do you think is contributing to the outward rise of Christian nationalism and what can people like us do to combat it? Yeah, great question. I I think the first thing I'd want to say is for so many of the people that are moving in that kind, those kinds of directions, um, part of me says, yeah, well, what else would they possibly think? Because the intuitions of the church have been shaped in those ways for so long. I think going all the way back to the time when Rome said to Christianity, you're going to be our official religion. Mm. When I talk about this, I always say Rome didn't make Christianity her official religion so that Christianity could get in the face of empire and say, you're not doing things the right way. (laughs) They did it to baptize what they were doing uh, in the name of God. And I think that obviously we could unpack that for hours is not the way of Jesus. And so in some ways, you know, while I understand why so many people have been tempted by that heresy, and it is a heresy, um, I think, you know, we've got to go back to, to use a word, a phrase that was prominent in the Reformation, back to the sources and go back particularly to the Gospels and the stories about the teaching of Jesus and reclaim, um, you know, a, a better way that really is a phrase I use in the book, uh, you know, uh, the development and pursuit of a world where everyone has enough and no one needs to be afraid. Yeah. And empire and nationalism just don't do business that way. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to recapture or get Christianity back on the tracks that its founder intended it to be on. And uh, that's that's the work of generations. Uh, so what we can do, I mean, I think we need to start, we need to be, uh, we need to teach it. We need to be upfront in our, in challenging those ideas. And we need to call people back to what we find in the gospels. Um, you know, one of the little sermons that I preach on Palm Sunday uh, is that you know, everyone welcomes Jesus, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, but so much of the imagery and the connection is that Jesus is riding in with imagery that connects him to David. And I think for a lot of the folks, um, you know, saying Hosanna, who later in the week were probably also saying crucify him, what they're saying when they say Hosanna in part is, I think, uh, Jesus who claims to be the Messiah, great, make Israel great again. And we know that that's one of the views of what it meant to be Messiah that is in circulation. And I think in the Gospels, Jesus resists that again and again. And in response to that desire 
to make Israel great again, Jesus says through the events of Holy Week, that's not the kind of king I am. That's not what messiahship is about. That's not what being God's chosen people is about. It's about loving our enemies, being willing to go to the cross for them, and shaping our lives for the sake of others. Um, very different view to what we see today, and I think what some in the crowd wanted uh, from Jesus. And well, still want. Yeah, yes, and still exactly. want. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in the book, you mentioned a couple of theologians that I'm going to, I'm going to be really honest and open, uh, made me twitch because it took me back to my seminary days when I had to write so many papers in systematic theology. You mentioned uh, uh, David Bosch and Daniel Migliori and just all these wonderful theologians. And I love how you used, especially Bosch, uh, because his book was so instrumental to me. And you argue for a missional life centered around gospel. Missions is not only about conversion and task, but it's about waking up every day with the gospel in your heart, your tongue, and in your hands. Do you think that we should begin advocating the concept of conversion as more, to to use kind of Bosch's terminology, a commissioning of faith? Because there's there's a moment in his book, and I think you capture it really nicely in uh, Missional Theology, that when Paul is knocked from his horse and blinded, many, we have a a temptation to preach that as conversion, but Bosch argued that it was more of a commissioning. And it seems as though historically we have placed an emphasis on conversion over commissioning. And so do you think that we need to start revisioning what it means to be a disciple in those terms? Absolutely. Um, and I like the way you're you're expressing it. I think that's exactly right. We so often, you know, one of the f- phrases um, that is has been common in the missional conversation that I've been a part of is that we are not, as individuals, the end users of the gospel, right? The idea we it doesn't end when I believe. Um, in fact, as you say, that that is the commissioning the calling, uh, the invitation to go out and get about the business of um, living God's love in the world. And I think we need to re-envision, honestly, discipleship, evangelism, and worship, which I see as the three core tasks of Christian congregations and communities, and all of them need to be rethought in light of this um, you know, this missional turn, the, which is basically the idea that we have been sent into the world, all of us who are followers of Jesus, after the same pattern by which Jesus, or by which the Father sent Jesus the Son. So, right? John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And that includes me, Autumn, Mitch, and everybody listening who's a follower of Jesus. We've been sent into the world to continue Jesus' mission, not simply to say, oh, I believe the right things, now I'll be good when I pass on, and what I do until then, you know, I can be better or worse, but it really isn't of ultimate significance. I think it is. Um, Yeah, well said. 
So you discussed this a little bit earlier, but you argue for this missional theology and must lead to a missional church, not just one week in the summer where you do missions. Right. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about what that looks like in your congregation. Yeah, well, I think we're, we, we are a large Presbyterian church, um, and I think our history has been what I would call kind of um, tall steeple Christendom sort of church. Um, and I think um, we are wrestling as a congregation and I think making some positive strides to what it means to be, to see ourselves as existing for the sake of our community and our neighborhood and those around us. Uh, and so that's, that entails lots of, of details and things we have to wrestle with, um, things we have to uh, change and reform. Um, and so Daryl Guder, who's somebody that I mentioned in Missional Church, wrote a really great book called The Continuing Conversion of the Church. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that this conversion, or to use Mitch's language from Bosch, this commissioning is not something that happens once but rather it's an ongoing process that we have to engage again and again, and we never arrive, right? We're always wrestling, asking, how can we be ever more faithful to the things that we say we believe? So at Second Presbyterian Church, we say that we are a welcoming uh, community of faith where Jesus Christ transforms lives, and we return to that core idea again and again and ask, are we as faithful to that as we can be? And so this missional turn gives us an opportunity to look at that uh, in fresh with fresh eyes. And, and I think we are in the process of doing that. Um, and, but it's an ongoing challenge, right? That's something we can say, well, you know, at the end of the summer, once that program's done, we'll, we'll have arrived. No, it's, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. So I got one final question for you before we get to our final, final question. And that has to do with your chapter on missional uh, multiplicity. You talk about the day of Pentecost, and that is really a signpost for the missional church. You write, the implications is that no single language or culture is to be viewed as the sole conduit of the gospel message. Now, I don't think anybody would argue with you about language. But culture seems to be a different story. Now, I'm not going to argue about it with you because I, be- I believe exactly what you said. But do you think, and this, this is kind of a tough question, do you think that we as a church need to, let me rephrase that, do you think we as a Western church primarily need to deconstruct the gospel from its Anglo-centric influences? Yes, Um and the way I would say it, deconstruction, of course, is a scary word for people. So maybe the better way, or not better, but the way I would want to say it is we need to understand that um, the context of gospel proclamation from that uh, Anglo-American context is simply a way of thinking about the gospel. And the problem, as I see it, because all any any framing of the gospel is shaped by the culture from which it originates. So that's not a problem. We can't help that. But the big problem we've had is that because a particular group have had cultural dominance, they have been able to suggest and make it appear as though their way, so the Anglo-European way of thinking about the gospel is 
the only way to think about it. And I think we need to decenter those mm. ideas, not eliminate them, but decenter them and invite them to step back from the center of let's imagine a round table, understand that they are only one voice among many, and we need to learn together from other framings. Now, I would also say that because that particular Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American, European tradition has been so dominant, as it decenters itself, it needs to take more the posture of a listener. Um, that tradition's done enough talking for a while. It uh, doesn't say that it doesn't have anything to continue to contribute, but I think what we would really, what would really be valuable, is to listen to folks in other traditions, especially uh, communities that haven't participated in the dominant culture structures, and help let them help us understand ways in which we have transformed the gospel into something more like the American dream, uh, because um, that's not the gospel. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that kind of stepping back and decentering um, is really what, what is necessary. And it's going to be challenging for people like, I'll say me, who have been privileged by those traditions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have to take the posture of a listener. Yeah, I love that idea of decenter or decentering this or recentering uh, the gospel, uh, or even spreading it out. Because as a, a citizen of the Muscogee Creek tribe uh, here in Oklahoma, you know I've got ancestors who were converted to Christianity, but in that conversion, uh, it was not necessarily, as I see it, as I understand it, as they told me, it was not a conversion to Christianity per se, but a conversion to white Christianity because right. the first thing they did was to strip them of their culture. Yep. Um, and that's not gospel, <laughs> in my opinion. Right. So I, I, you know, I couldn't say amen enough to what you just said. I, I just, in the book, I mentioned very briefly the story of Richard Twiss, mm -hmm. who was a Laco member of the Lakota tribe, yeah. and he tells exactly that story. He says um, that for the tribes of North America, the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been very good news mm -hmm. because the missionaries came and said, um, all old things have passed away and all the new things have come and they are white. Mm -hmm. And, and he talks about in his work, he's got a great book called rescuing the gospel from the cowboys, which was published after his passing. And he says, yeah, what happens when you tell a group of people, nothing in your culture is good. You have to give all that up and be like us so that you can be faithful to God. And that's, if I can just, so I love Andrew Walls, a missionary from Edinburgh, who says, God always meets us where we are. We don't have to get rid of our culture mm -hmm. to, to follow Jesus. And then God always leads us on a process of transformation. God never leaves us where we, he found us, but helps transform us. But that always takes place in a particular cultural framework. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I... I think that's a huge way that we need to rethink our notion of mission. Well, Dr. John Frankie, thank you so much uh, for visiting with us at Good Faith Weekly. The book is Missional Theology, an Introduction, and it is at uh, barnesandnoble.com, 
um, uh, Amazon.com. You can pick it up anywhere you uh, choose to buy your books. Well, we've got one last question for you before we let you go. And Autumn always has the distinguished pleasure of asking this question. So Autumn, take it away. Of course, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today and maybe some things that we haven't, what is your more to tell? Yeah, I think that the message I would want to leave folks with is uh, in the midst of this very difficult uh, time that we're living through this pandemic uh, and for all the ways that so many of folks can be discouraged about the church and about Christianity, um, the more to tell is God is not finished with us yet. God is still at work. God's at work even in places where uh, we we don't we can't imagine it, um, and so I suppose I'll close with this story. Uh, there's a, re- a recent uh, fellow named Daryl Thomas, who worked for years uh, in in the in the national administration and security work, and he's been interviewed a lot recently because he's done a lot of research on white nationalism and the terror that these groups. Um, uh, have instigated in the world or even plotting. And one of the things he says is that in his years of experience, the only way he has seen folks in those kind of contexts change and leave them is because when is when they are loved. And it reminded me of Jesus' message that um, we have to love. Uh, it's hard, it's challenging, we have enemies, but the response has to be to love because that's how the world is going to change. So the more to tell is we can't lose hope. We've got to keep loving and remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous line, um, darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. Let's get about the business of loving. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Frankie, thank you so much for being with us uh, this week. We really appreciate your work uh, there at the church and also your, uh, your, your theology work, uh, the, the many books and, and articles that you've written. Uh, just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in this week at Good Faith Weekly. Until next time, remember, keep living good faith.